we've had the COVID virus, and now we have the monkeypox virus. And we found out that a month or two before each of them, there were simulations of how they might be spread upon the world. What do our globalist masters have in store for us next? You can be sure there's something. But what can you do about it? The best thing you can do is to keep your immune system resistant, resilient, and clean. You can do that by going to zstacklife.com. Dr. Zelenko has developed a system called Supplement System that has saved thousands of patients that he treated with very few hospitalizations. You can go to zstacklife.com and get the ZStack protocol. You can get the protocol for children and the detox formula. If you go to zstacklife.com and use promo code CDM, you can get a 5% discount for off all of the products. So keep your immune system healthy as we wait for the next virus to come down the pike. Go to promo to go to zstacklife.com and use promo code CDM for a 5% discount. And now let's get to our guest. So welcome to our In Plain Sight series on a global conversation of what's going on worldwide with COVID. As everybody knows, last week I did an interview with Dr. Dennis Carroll, who is part of the, uh, Fauci's camp, and he's uh, one of the people who has been involved for many, many years in hunting for the 1.6 million viruses, of which there are 25 coronavirus families. And he's part of the people who want to, in fact, go out and create a seasonal vaccination for all the coronaviruses when they are discovered. So this is an ongoing business. And our next guest is someone who participated a year ago in Atlanta for our American Conversations Town Hall. Dr. Tommy Redwood, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Dr., as you shared last year what you saw, I mean, for, first of all, you're a doctor who is, you know, but recognizes number three in Atlanta. You're now practicing down. You've been in the ER. You're now practicing down in Alabama. And let's you shared something that I thought was very interesting a year ago on the stage. You talked about the profile of the people that were coming into the hospitals at the time who had COVID disease. Tell it, let the public understand the profiles of the people that were coming into the hospitals. Yeah, that. happy to do so. Yeah. When this first started, we did not know what to expect. We heard the pandemic was coming and uh, it was kind of just brace and see, see what, what happens. What became apparent very early was that there was a patient profile that you mentioned. That profile consisted of people that were at risk. People who were at risk for bad outcome had uh, is a common factor obesity. Obesity, diabetes, hypertension were the big three. And obesity, far and above any other risk factor, was the thing that we were seeing that would end up necessitating people to have to be admitted to the hospital. And so this risk factor profile, once we began to see that, it, it was it, it became apparent that this this vaccine 
this this pandemic was going to be a pandemic. Yeah, it was going to get everybody infected, but the mortality was age-related, which was the other risk factor. So age and then obesity, hypertension, and diabetes. And if I saw a young person coming in would be really ill, if they weren't obese, I didn't have to go much further down the list before I found out they were a severe diabetic or had severe hypertension, but there were pre-existing risk factors for these, these patients. And far and above, obesity was the thing that we saw as the biggest risk factor. And despite that, we never heard anything about that. There was no public service messaging to that effect. Uh, I, w- I had a couple of interviews that I gave, uh, and I always up as a risk factor, and it always was left on the editing floor, never made it to, to final cut, uh, which I think was a really disservice to the general public. And we never told, we never, we closed the gym, so we should have kept the gyms open and told people if they were overweight to go on a diet. Yeah, keep the gyms open. They were closing parks. They weren't wanting people to go out and walk and get sunshine and, and just do anything to kind of work count that. So now uh, in the hospitals, uh, Dennis Carroll said last week that, in fact, you know, he had recently been to the hospital. He and his wife have been both vaccinated and boosted. His wife got COVID. They went to the hospital. He asked the doctor in the hospital, and this is either in Maryland or the D.C. area someplace, uh, you know, who are the people that are hospitalized? And what Dennis Carroll said was that the doctor said to him that they're mostly people who are unvaccinated. You are in the hospital. You've been in the ER. You've been in, you know, hospitals across Georgia and now in Alabama. What are you seeing in there? Because he he is not a practicing physician. Yeah. What are you seeing? I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people come in to be diagnosed with COVID and then sent home. We're not admitting people with this anymore. And I'm saying that all age groups and risk factors, we're just not seeing patients that need to be admitted. And I'm working in Montgomery, Alabama, in a very high-risk demographic population. Uh, a lot of obesity, a lot of hypertension, a lot of diabetes, a lot of crowded living conditions. And I'm sending people home. And I, when I say sending people home, I'm talking about people in their 80s who come in with a little low-grade fever and a cough, and I diagnose them with COVID, and they're going home. Because this this virus is, is, is mutated to where it's now staying more in the upper respiratory tract system, not getting down to the lung tissue. So we're seeing kind of like a long-acting flu, where you get achiness, you get headache, you may get a little nausea. The fatigue seems to last a little bit longer longer instead of five as it is with the flu. We're seeing it last sometimes for some people up to one to two weeks. If we're admitting anybody to the hospital, it's somebody who is elderly who hydrated because they didn't want to eat. And I've had a couple of that. I had one patient who had not eaten and she got up to go to the bathroom, passed out, hit her head and had a, a cerebral hemorrhage. So I admitted her for the cerebral but her chest X-ray and her oxygenations were completely normal. So she had a room air sat of 98% and her chest x-ray was normal. So she wasn't being admitted for COVID, she was being, she had a fall and had a head injury. So let me ask you about what she, what are you hearing among your colleagues who are still working in the hospitals? How do they feel about the, the directives coming from the CDC? What's going on you know, in the Fauci camp? I mean, just, are they just ignoring these people at this point? I, I will say what I've said before on this, and that is when you're a, when you're a practicing physician, you rely on your institutions to give you guidance, right? I mean, we look to NIH, we look to our professional organizations, American College of Emergency Physicians, American Board of Emergency Medicine, AMA. We look to these organizations to give us guidance on what to do, tell us what to do, 
and we'll go and we'll execute. And so you've had a lot of blind faith from from healthcare providers by and large when this pandemic came out. There are a few, myself included, who you know stopped to ask questions, uh, but for the most part, people have just followed along. What they're all acknowledging now, though, is is what you can no longer deny, and that is one: the vaccines failed at preventing disease, and therefore, if it's preventing acquiring the infection, it's also not going to prevent you from transmitting it to other people. That's what cost me my job in Atlanta. I was uh, told that if I didn't get the vaccine, I could not stay on medical staff. And I was on medical staff at two of the major healthcare systems in Atlanta. I worked in downtown Atlanta, and then I worked 40 miles north of Atlanta. And prior to that, I had been medical director for the busiest ED in the state and had been so for 15 years. That healthcare system told me that if I didn't get the vaccine, I could no longer work because the vaccine would protect me from getting infected, which would prevent me from transmitting it to the patients. And despite my best efforts at convincing them that this was ill-founded logic, they held fast to their to their mandate. And so I lost my job. I was I was terminated from the medical facility, these two healthcare systems. Now you go back and you look and they're all having to acknowledge that everybody's becoming infected. Just like Dennis Carroll, and he said he took his wife to the hospital last week because she had COVID. I don't mm-hmm. think people hear the words coming out of their mouths. They're saying, thank goodness I got vaccinated and got double boosted. Yeah, I got the infection, but at least I got vaccinated. I, I don't is, know that they're connected it's, it's bizarre. The people I'm seeing right now who, who appear the most ill, and again, this is anecdotal, but for me, the people I'm seeing who are the most ill are middle-aged adults who've only been vaccinated and they get it for the first time. They seem to be the most miserable. They're all going home because their oxygenations are fine and their chest x-rays look good, but they seem to be the most miserable. You know, what, about the, what about the vax injured? How many of the, how many of them are showing up at the hospital? I saw a lot when the vaccine first started coming out. Uh, I saw, you know, what you would expect as far as some of the adverse events, I'll share with you a story that I had that when I early on in the first probably three to four months of the vaccine coming out, I had a 42 year old female who came into the hospital. It was her second visit in the ED after she'd been vaccinated. She came the first day after her vaccine and she was complaining of the typical things we hear people complain about the, the muscle aches, the joint pain, the fever, the headache, kind of like a mini COVID infection. Mm-hmm. So they kind of said, you're fine. This is, this is what to be expected. Go home, take Tylenol. You'll do fine. She comes back and sees me two days later. The chief complaint is that she can't walk. Now, when an ER physician hears somebody can't walk after a vaccine, you think about Guillain-Barre. And Guillain-Barre mm-hmm. is an ascending paralysis. You start losing motor function in the feet, and it works its way up to the diaphragm to the point where you can't breathe. So I go in the room expecting to see this woman who has lost her reflexes and is weak. Instead, what I found was a woman who, when I tapped her, her knee to check her reflex, it just bounced off the table. The other thing I did was I took her foot. What you can do is you can hold a patient's foot and you can push it like you're taking the, their, like you're trying to get them to heel walk. So you push on their right. foot and your typical reaction is your foot may beat once or twice. Her foot started tapping and it wouldn't stop. And we call that clonus. So this woman, instead of losing reflexes, was hyper reflexive. And when I stood her up to try to walk, she was so spastic she could not walk. So now this is where it, it, this kind of dovetails back into what you asked me about what other colleagues of mine are thinking about this. Mm-hmm. I saw this patient 
I went and talked to neurology. I arranged to get her admitted to the hospital. And there were two colleagues of mine who were working with me. And I shared this story with them. I said, I have this woman who can't walk. She's got hyperspasticity. She's hyperreflexic. And the, both of them looked at me and said, and rolled their eyes and said, well, gosh, I hope this doesn't get out because that'll be another reason people don't want to get this vaccine. And I, 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 I was speechless. Wow. So we wow. have, we've got a lot of blind faith. I think right now people are beginning to maybe question their, their blind allegiance to these mandates. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope they are because, you know, we all know that, you know, another coronavirus is out there being, sought for right now, I guess. Well, they, they do have their horizon on it, Dr. Yeah. Uh, do you think that, have you, have you, because you've been in the trenches, do you think that there is a breakthrough though, that it's breaking down and, and doctors are coming around and nurses are coming around on the inside that are still working at the hospitals and saying, this isn't right? Yeah, I, I think more and more people, but again, just like we hear uh, Fauci and everyone else say, thank goodness I got vaccinated. Yes, I got COVID, but at least I had the vaccine. Burks just the other day acknowledged on, I can't remember what show it was on, but she said, well, I always knew this vaccine wasn't going to keep you from getting infected. I just bought her book. I want to read it. I want to interview her. I, I, it's, it's, just, it's amazing. She had an exchange with uh, Congressman Jim Jordan sometime in the last two weeks or 10 days. And and he was, she was talking about, you know, they were hoping it was going to work. And I thought to myself, hoping and mandating that that is, that's not exactly, that, that is not good medicine. If you're well, hoping here's the thing. Work. Yeah. Here's the thing. Back in September of last year, when I was lobbying to these two healthcare systems to please reconsider your policy, mm-hmm. how did I know? I, I'm working in the trenches. It's not, it just takes a little effort on your part to do some research, to see what's going on globally. I, I was sharing with these hospital administrations that because of Omicron, Delta, this is when Delta came out. Once Delta was on the scene, this vaccine was no longer effective. First of all, we were having waning immunity at six months, and then Delta variant came. And when Delta variant came, all you had was look at Israel, look at the UK, see what their vaccine failure rate was, and predict that that same thing was coming our way. So I tried to make my whole, my whole plea to systems, not on religious exemptions, not on medical exemptions, but on the facts, on the scientific facts. This is what we're seeing. Let's rethink our policy. You know, if you want, and and at that time I offered as, as a as a, a compromise, I'll I'll come in, I'll let you test me every time I come to work. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to be wearing a mask. The patients are coming to us. I'm not coming into work symptomatic. If I'm sick, I'm staying home. It's right. the patients who are sick that are coming to us. So if anything, I would be catching it from them. They're not going to be catching it from me. It was, it was flawed policy creation all along. And so, yeah, I, right now when I hear more and more people uh, from the federal government saying, you know, it's a good thing I got double vaxxed, get double boosted. Yes, you're going to get COVID, but still get your vaccine. And now we're hearing that everybody needs to at least know that you can fall back on Paxlovid. Thanks, love. Right. We're having rebound infections from this. I was just, my son's an ER physician, and I was just talking to him today. He had two, a 72-year-old couple yesterday that he saw at work in central Georgia. They both had COVID infection. They both took Paxlovid. Eight days later for one, six days later for the other, they both came back in sicker than they were before, reinfected. Same thing happened to uh to Fauci. And I just saw something earlier today that I think Biden's had rebound on Paxlovid. 
Well, I I hadn't seen that today. I, yeah, look for it. I think it's okay. starting to kind of hit the airways, but it's like Biden has rebounded. Now, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But this was something I just saw a news feed on that rebounded. So the well, one, but so they give us a vaccine that does and then they give us an FDA approved drug that lets mm -hmm. you get reinfected. So hopefully people are going to start asking questions and start, you know, not just blindly following authority as we have up to this point. One of the other things that Dennis Carroll said, uh, he was talking about that where he is, that, you know, he sees people, everybody's masked up. Everybody's wearing the N95s. Now, I don't see the N95s in my community at all. I don't see the uh, masks uh, at the grocery store, at the gas stations, walking down the street. I just don't see the yeah. mask. I mean, periodically, somebody will have one of those blue masks on, although I have a cloth mask on. But nobody I, nobody in my orbit is wearing an N95. What are you seeing in, in your world? Okay, I was out Aaron shopping today. Okay, just going to the grocery store, off work for a few days, and I just kind of did an informal interview or survey, I should say. And at the two grocery stores I went to, I saw maybe five people wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. And this was, you know, it was a Saturday. It's busy. You know, there were not people wearing masks. Some were wearing N95s. Most people wear these little cloth designer masks. When I'm in the hospital, they want us to wear surgical masks. We're not wearing uh, you can. I mean, they certainly they, they don't discourage you wearing an N95, but as long as you're wearing a surgical mask, they consider that barrier protection enough. And but, now is, that, is that just the policy that's coming down from the top from your hospital administrators? I think it's when you come in as a surgical mask, you put on a mask, you go to work. And that's just kind of but they're not they're not dispensing N95s. All right. So that's that's another thing that we, we can dispute with um, Dennis Carroll. Yeah. And, you know, Dennis, the other thing, because I, I think I saw some of that interview. And if you were to listen to him, this virus is he acknowledged that it's now kind of an annual virus. It's, it's year round. And he's mm -hmm. saying that we need to continue to mask and continue to social distance. I don't see the logic to that. This virus is not what it once was. OK, that would be the saying that influenza could mutate at any year and we could have another 1918 epidemic. So in advance warning for that, we should socially distance and wear a mask. Um, so, so my, my question, I, I want to look to where do you see the light at the end of the tunnel or is there a light at the end of the tunnel for the, for the medical community through all this? That's a tough question to answer. I'm not sure that there necessarily is a lot. At the end of the time, I think that we still are adhering to this two-solution policy of vaccines and the one FDA drug that's been approved, and that's all I'm seeing. I, I'm not seeing any support for alternative uh, treatment options, early intervention. The things that frustrated me the most about this whole pandemic from the from the onset was we were not being given any guidance for anything we could do other than tell people to come back, wait for the vaccine, and then. When it looked like there were some breakthrough drugs that could be used, we were actively discouraged from using. And, and ordered not to in some instances. Uh, a threat of, of being terminated. Uh, I was right. threatened to have my job taken away from me if I continued to prescribe ivermectin. So from a physician's point of view, I mean, people have told me this. I know a lot more today than I did two and a half years ago uh, when I first started covering COVID. 
but many of the doctors are telling me that a lot of the problems lie with uh, the fact that you have for the at the for-profit hospitals, you have people who have MBAs instead of doctors uh, running the hospitals. And hence, it's about money at this point in time in some of these for-profit hospitals. Did you find that to be your experience at the hospitals where you no. were? No, we were, when we were having to people, there was not any soft call as to why we were admitting them. So they, these were very objective criteria we were using to have people admitted. Uh, as far as vaccine compliance, I know that in the past with influenza vaccine compliance, CMS would reimburse healthcare systems additional monies if they reached a certain threshold for compliance among their employees. So I would assume the same thing applied here. So what happens next though? I mean, it, it, it must be hard on the morale for physicians like yourself if you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, what we're dealing with now is a, a challenge with staffing shortages. But one of, the, one of the downstream consequences of what we just went through was that when all this COVID relief funding started coming in, they started paying nurses. They wouldn't pay the nursing and the ancillary staff to stay loyal to the facility where they stayed. These people would ask for, you know, can we get combat pay? We're, we're working under extreme conditions. We would like to get paid more. Hospital administrators would say, no, we're not going to give you a raise. And if we need to, we can pull through the relief funding. And so it created a musical chair environment where nurse A went to, to hospital B Nurse B went to hospital A. You just started having traveling nurses who would shift positions because they were making 50, 75% more than what their base pay was prior to the pandemic. Now that the as pandemic- tra as, as traveling nurses. Yeah, as traveling nurses. So these people were tra respiratory therapists, tra uh, uh, nurses, they, they would travel, they would make a lot more money. And then what's happened now is that the COVID relief dollars have dried up. That's all kind of become a thing of the past that money up, healthcare systems are now faced with it with a dilemma of nursing staff and ancillary staff saying we still want to get paid, and the hospitals are saying I can't afford you, so they're not working. And what we're dealing with now is a shortage of inpatient beds. And when we don't have a place to take admitted patients out of the emergency department and place them into the inpatient setting, they stay in the emergency department. If they stay in the emergency department, my waiting room fills up with patients that I can't get to. And that's what we're seeing right now. I think in some ways, and this is not just me saying this, this is other healthcare providers, other physicians I hear, that it seems almost more dangerous right now to be a patient than it was back during the pandemic. Because there's a shortage. That's, that's a pretty profound statement to say. I mean, it, 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 I know that there's a fear of going to hospitals among the public that, that I talk yeah. to. They yeah. don't want to go to the hospitals because they don't know if something, if, if they catch COVID, for instance, in the hospital, are they going to be forced to stay in the hospital and take a treatment that they don't no. believe in? No, I, I think, Remdesivir, like I said, we're not having to treat COVID anymore. We're just not. It, it's not something that we're seeing this requiring. Now, I'm sure there are cases, so I, I'm, I'm not... Mm -hmm. I'm not everywhere, but like I said, I'm in a very high risk population and we're not admitting patients to the hospital. We're just not now. I'll tell you how bad it is. We're having such a shortage of, of beds available that I had a patient that came in the other day, nothing to do with COVID. The 82 year old woman who gave classic symptoms for unstable angina 
and she'd already had a stress test that was abnormal. So I needed to keep this patient in the hospital to get her to the cath lab. But the one hospital where I was at did not have cardiac cath capabilities. So I needed to get this patient transferred to the other hospital. I had to keep that patient in my emergency department for two days in an ER bed waiting to get transferred to the other hospital where she could get her catheterization done. So we're, we're parking people in the ED setting. And the ED is, a, is the place you want to be if you don't if you don't have a diagnosis established. If you're there with acute symptoms, we are the we are the people you want to be taking care of you. Once mm-hmm. we've diagnosed you, and once we've we're moving on to the next patient that needs to be diagnosed, an emergency department's a dangerous place to be after you've been admitted. And it's not because of lack of capabilities. It's just we're focused on the immediate first four to six hours of disease presentation. After that long-term inpatient nursing care is not something we're accustomed to doing right it's it's uh it's it's dicey right now and we're hearing this everywhere this is not just where i'm working it's in central georgia it's in atlanta it's in a lot of places so i'm sure it's probably a national uh challenge right now so COVID is not a problem right now it's the the downstream effects of what happened from COVID policy have you taken a look at the, the recent story about the communications internally at the CDC and with the social media networks? No. Yeah. Well, they, they're, they're talking about, you know, what the, the definitions of what should be censored by Twitter um, based upon the recommendations by CDC. How do you feel as a doctor um, who's been practicing for decades in major hospitals? All right. You know, hearing about the censorship uh, I, is that a rhetorical question <laughs> it, it's 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 uh it's chilling it, you know the fact that we are having knowledge censored that the the thing is i think it's going to fail i i think that the and what i'm hopeful for is that the american people and really the people of the of the globe will start to wake up to what's been happening to us the last two years and realize that it's been a lot of manipulation fear, a lot of isolation. And with that fear and isolation, they've, they've had us hanging on uh, with bated breath, waiting for an answer. We got their answer and their answer has failed us. Uh, and now we're seeing from what you're telling me, they're now this information. And it's, it's quite amazing. I was looking up today. I was just kind of Googling to pull up the latest bears day on, on the, from the vaccine. And the first four or five hits I got were things like right-wing anti-vaxxers use federal government vaccine reporting system to create misinformation. Mm-hmm. And what they're saying is that if you go onto the VAERS database, use their numbers, you're disseminating misinformation. It's, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary because because yeah. it, it is it's so deeply corrupted and immoral. Nobody should be leaving anything that comes out of the FDA or the CDC at this point. No. Any place in the world, that gold standard that the FDA had in the past stands no longer. Yeah. And you know what? One day something's going to hit when we should be able, when we should trust them and we're not going to. And that, that's the problem. This is the boy that cried wolf. This is the federal agencies is what this is. No, it is. It's it's absolutely extraordinary. Well, Tommy, is there anything else that you can tell the audience that you think they should know at this point in time? Uh, I, I think that as far as COVID goes, I think that the worst of this is behind us. I think that we need to look back on the past two years and see going forward 
number one, to get ourselves in better health. I mean, this is a disease that really worked on the vulnerable, by and large. There were people that would fall out. But this, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, this was a disease that hit people who had poor health status going in. So start getting outside, start exercising, start eating a little more healthy. Don't always believe everything you hear from your federal agencies. Ask around uh, and, and kind of trust your gut. You know, I, I, I think that we need to actively start pushing back. I heard today that there was a, I think, a group in Chicago that just won a class action lawsuit, $10 million. So maybe maybe people are beginning to kind of have evidence on their side now to go, okay, we're we're responding. We're not going to take this anymore. So right. that, was, that was that was I think it was a group of physicians or nurses, and it was yeah. in the healthcare. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. definitely. Doctor Redwood, thank you very much. Glad to have you on the show. My pleasure. Have a good day. Take care.